Okay, not that long ago, we discussed this whole concept of national divorce. And the first thing I want to say right off the bat is, I don't want that. I don't want that. I love my country. I fought for my country. I want to say my I want my country to stay completely intact. However, it is important to understand from a historical perspective. Sorry, Queen of the Bees had her volume on. <laughs> I had it off. We discussed we discussed this whole concept of national divorce and what what were the conditions that would actually need to be there in order for such a thing to to actually happen. We're not we're not talking about like crazy theories, but like what are the conditions that are usually necessary for a country to undergo revolution. And so we're going to do a brief overview of those conditions that we discussed before, but then what we're going to talk about is the other thing that you notice historically is that certain conditions have to be met, and then there's a catalyst. There, there's something that takes place. There, there's that spark, and then there's a response. So we're going to talk today about the conditions. We're going to talk about the potential catalyst that could actually light this whole thing off. And then we're going to talk about the response of states, of the federal government, and of individuals. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument Powered by Good Ranchers. Thank you again for joining us today during our live stream. We'll be using the Q&A feature within the YouTube live chat. So if you have a question that you would like us to like to propose and have us answer, please go to the top of the live chat, click that button and leave your question there. We look forward to seeing your comments in the regular live chat as we continue to stream today. But if you haven't already, go down to the link in the description. I hope you will join our community chat. We've been having some great conversations there with multiple people. It's been a pleasure getting to know everyone. And let's get right into today's show. Okay, as always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good guy. Then we have my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Yes, sorry about the volume issue. I, I thought know, I gosh, turned it off. I'll tell you what, had that been anybody else? <laughs> I caused the echo, everyone. <laughs> and then, of course, we have our resident historian and political prognosticator, who we are still searching for a more quippy nickname. There's been so a lot please, of options Christian so far. Of doom. Please, please provide, please provide potential suggestions. Christian, how are you doing? Look... Friend, I know that things seem scary right now, but I just want you to know it's about to get a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> you know that meme, right? <laughs> and then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. This is going to be awesome. Oh, yeah. And, and actually, uh, central banking will probably feature into a potential uh, potential catalyst in here. All right. Okay. So first things first, let's, let's go ahead and define our terms and make a few qualifying statements. So as I already said before... I love my country. I want my country to stay intact, but I also want to understand the sort of conditions that could take place in the United States. I want to, I don't want to be ignorant of history. I don't want to be ignorant of potential catalysts. So that's what we're going to discuss. So the three conditions that we discussed in a previous video where we talked about um, whether or not um, various things were in place to actually make like a genuine revolution within the United States, like genuine, you know, conflict in the streets, potential separation. Uh, had those been met? And, and the conclusion we came to was no, but things were moving in that direction. So what were those three conditions? Well, the first one was when you have a significant uh, sector, you have significant sections of the population which fundamentally disagree about what the country is, what the purpose of its government is, what its core values are, um, you know, certain unifying cultural points, right? And, and we came to the conclusion that it's been a long time since the United States has been probably this divided with respect to what we see as the potential within our country, whether or not our country and its founding is an inherently good or bad, and the direction that we want our country to go. Do we want 
wanted to be focused more on this idea of kind of like the classical liberal notion. And by classical liberal, we're talking about things like, you know, Montesquieu. We're talking things like John Locke. We're talking about these ideas of the founding where it was individual liberty and property rights and free market economics and a very, very limited, constrained uh, government, especially at the federal level, right? That's more the classical liberal approach. The, the predominant left-wing approach has been far more focused on this idea of democracy as kind of the, the, the shaping characteristic of America and therefore uh, the majority essentially dictating what, what the values of the country would be. And those tend to be focused more on a, a collectivist future of America. That doesn't mean that everybody on the left is a, a communist or anything like that. It just means that when they see the role and the purpose of the government, they see one that is going to be a lot playing a, a far more proactive role on what we might consider the, the culturally shaping and the economic shaping institutions within our country. This has to do with controlling education, controlling health care. Uh, what, what role should the government play with respect to managing the economy or making sure that there's a certain basic level of income? Or all, the left tends to prefer a far more active government and a far more active federal government in order to achieve their desired outcomes. Now, what you need to understand is, is that those two viewpoints are, on some level, diametrically opposed. They don't work. One side is basically saying we want the federal government to play a, a far greater role. That's going to require more coercion and confiscation and redistribution. And the other side is essentially saying, well, we don't want the federal government to play that role. So again, you're, you're going to have some pretty significant conflict here where it's not agree to disagree. It's not live and let live. It's do what I want or else. So that was the first criteria. Like, do we have a general sense that we're all going in the same direction? We generally believe the same things. The second uh, condition that we said was the geographical self sorting. One of the things that we're starting to witness is that more and more people are starting to move, not just because of higher taxes, not just because the weather's nicer, not just because, um, you know, it might be a better regulatory environment for the business that that's part of it, but there does seem to be more of an ideological bent in why people are moving to different places right now. And that's, that's significant because a lot of times throughout history, we've seen general trends, right? People say, Oh, we got more people moving from New York to Florida. Okay, but if they're 65 plus, they're probably not moving because they have some sort of ideological problem with New York. They're probably leaving because it's warmer in Florida, right? You see the same thing with places like Arizona. But now we're starting to see a far larger shift of people packing up and leaving places like California, like Illinois, like New York, and they're going to decidedly more conservatively governed states. And for the first time, they appear to be going there and continuing to vote that way instead of going and changing into the place that they left. That's not to say that those things aren't still happening. Talk to anybody that lives in Austin or Colorado, and they will tell you that they are tired of people moving into their state and changing it from what they remembered it as. But we're starting to see a significant push with more geographical self-sorting based along ideological lines. And the reason why we discuss that being so important is because if you're actually talking about a situation where certain states tend, you know, decide they want to break away or they no longer want to be a part of this, you, you need to have an overwhelming portion of the population which actually believes that. Otherwise, it's very difficult. Now, we asked ourselves, has that condition been met? And the conclusion we came to is no especially because there seems to be a big urban or rural divide, even within red states or blue states, but it seems to be moving in that direction. Again, so has the condition, condition been met? No, but is it moving in that direction? It kind of seems to be. Here was the third criteria that, that we mentioned kind of broadly, and that was the federal imposition, right? The, the, the growth of the federal government to such a degree to where 
you can't escape the sort of policies that you can currently escape now within an individual state. So, so what is necessary for that? Well, what's necessary is for one side to not only have complete control of the federal government. And what we mean by that is they have control of both houses of Congress. They have control of the executive branch in the form of the presidency and they have the ability to get what they want out of the Supreme Court. So you can imagine a scenario where if you had kind of a very left-wing progressive administration that was the speaker, the Senate majority leader, the president, and let's say they you know, added five more justices to the Supreme Court, and now the Supreme Court was essentially a rubber stamp for those things. Now you can imagine an environment where they are now imposing things which are usually reserved at the state level. They're now imposing them on the federal level. Well, when that happens you can't escape anymore. It's not like if you're a conservative that wants to leave California, you just go to Texas or, or Florida or Wyoming. It's not as if you're a liberal and you want to escape Texas or Florida and go to New York and California. At that point, whoever's controlling the federal government to that extent, they get to impose their will, right? And, and as we discussed many times, federalism is one of the things that allows the country to, to operate in such a way to where a republic can get to the size that we have in the United States and still respect cultural, economic, social differences among regions. But if, you, if everything's just imposed at the federal level, that becomes impossible. There's no more escape. So have we reached that point yet? The answer is no, obviously. We have split government right now. You'd say conservatives have more seats on the current Supreme Court. The Democrats control the Senate and the presidency, but the Republicans control the House. You'll have some people say that's just the uni party. All, all we're talking about right now is that nobody has the ability to ram home essentially anything that they want, like you see in certain places that have parliamentarian democracies. All right, so... Those are the three conditions, all right? Those are, those are the things that we discussed. Again, one of those we said has been met. One of those has been met. That's the diametrically opposed ideas. That's the idea where we're no longer arguing about just what should the top marginal tax rate should be. We're now arguing about who we are as a country and where we should be going in a very, very significant and fundamental way. That's been met. Second one, geographical self-sorting. Not totally been met, but starting to be met. And then the third one is, one side controlling the federal government and believing that the federal government is the proper tool to implement their will. That already exists on the left, but it's starting to exist more on the right now, right? That's always been something that, that hasn't really characterized the right, but it's starting to more and more in the United States. So one has been met, one seems to be going in that direction, one has not been met. What we're going to talk about today is assuming those three things were met, what would be the catalyst? What would be the tipping point? Because what we find throughout history, when we look at World War II, when we look at World War I, when we look at different crisis points within the French Revolution, when we look at our, our own revolution within the United States, there's usually a, a whole set of things that lead up to something, but then there's a tipping point. There's something that we can all point back to where it was the storming of the Bastille for the French Revolution, even though so many things had happened before the storming of the Bastille. But that seems to be a kickoff point that is significant within the history of the French Revolution. Whether it's the, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand that kicked off World War I, that would not have been a big deal had there not been several other conditions that that ended up being the powder cake, that ended up being the, the match that lit it all. So that's what we're going to discuss today. What are the potential catalysts that could take place that could really kick this whole thing off? And the thing that you need to know when, when, you, when you talk about these conditions and when you talk about a catalyst is the catalyst can be something very, very simple. For instance, it could be you going to the store and realizing 
that there's no steak, there's no chicken, and there's no seafood. And that is your catalyst to then go to good ranchers. <laughs> that is your catalyst. Quiet, all of you. That is your catalyst to then go to good ranchers because good ranchers is not going to let you down. Good ranchers is not going to be a catalyst for violent revolution because they are dependable and because they raise, they raise quality American beef, poultry, pork. If you want to make sure that you are operating with a company, right, that shares those, those basic core values, but is absolutely dedicated to creating a quality product. Good Ranchers is the place to go. We actually had Ben Spell on here. And one of the things I talked to him about was like, look, I cannot stand so-called conservative businesses demanding my patronage because they claim to be patriotic. You want to put the American flag on your symbol. You want to talk about you're the sort of, you're the sort of company that shares my values. Well, then that should translate into a quality product and service. And Ben Spell and the people of Good Ranchers and the people, the ranches they deal with absolutely believe that. And I know because we have ordered their food repeatedly and we have never been disappointed. Plus, today, because we're also fiscally conservative, you order Good Ranchers and you go to the link and you use promo code Nick. It's right there in the channel. You can see it right there. Use the promo code Nick. You're going to get $30 off and free shipping for some of the best, most quality American raised beef, pork, poultry, seafood you've ever had. Go over to Good Ranchers, promo code Nick, to get that $30 off and free shipping from a company you can trust. All right. Now, let's go ahead and talk real quickly. The perfect ad segue doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> nope, prove me wrong. I actually, last episode, there was somebody in the comments that said that um, <laughs> when, when you said that. So you're doing a better job with that. I don't know. Somebody I, said this was the most amazingly awful sponsor segue I've ever seen. Like the most, the worst you've ever seen? No, not the worst. Way worse ones. I could do worse. So, I could do, I'll, I'll practice. I could do worse. I thought that was pretty, you know, was pretty um, the, the whole like, catalyst thing is is interesting because there's a distinction we were talking about this right before the episode began there's a distinction between events that contribute to something happening and the spark that actually you know starts the fire right it, it, you know one is the gasoline and the other one is the match yeah um a, a really good example that that i think you listed is you know actually it's kind of related to my paper right like yeah. um because you can look at like decades, like going back to like the Franco-Prussian War, right? You can go back like 40 years before World War One and find things that contributed to the causes of the war. But none of those things started the war. It was one man's assassination that actually, you know, sent troops across the border, you know, in Belgium, right? It, it, the, the meme, you know, when you're an Englishman and you're drafted to go fight the Germans in France because a Serbian shot an Austrian in Bosnia, <laughs> like it, it, nobody could have necessarily really predicted that ahead of time. Well, you, you were, you were recently reading a book and, and it was one that I don't know if they recommended like another channel that we love to watch is what if alt hist. I mean, if you haven't seen that channel, go check it out. They're really good. But this book on, um, what, what's the title of it? It's called the, not here. I, I, I'll, I'll, Bring it up so that way the audience can look at it. It's called The Anatomy of Revolution yeah. by Crane Brinton. Um, the book was originally published in, I think, 1938. might have been 1937. Pretty sure 1938. Um, it was revised in uh, either the 50s or 60s. But um, this book, it's a, it's a really good book, by the way. Um, Brinton actually ended up being a huge influence for Carol Quigley, who's a historian that What It Felt Hist actually really likes. And he, he ended up writing some forewords to a few books um, by Quigley. Well, this book lays out a um, 
kind of a guide for the, the course in which a revolution typically takes place. Now, he points out that not all revolutions are the same, right? But he, he brings up some, some, some key unifying points between four major revolutions that took place um, going back to the English Revolution in 1860, or the, I think, 1860s. Um, might have been 1850s. No, sorry, 1840, or sorry, 16. Why do I keep saying 18? 1640s. Um, and the um, he goes through the English Revolution, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and finally the Russian Revolution. And he points out that there's a few things that, that unite all of them. And then there's also a couple things that are separate. Like, for example, the American Revolution does not have a reign of terror, whereas yeah. the other three do. But what's what's interesting is is the the catalysts that he brings up there's some unifying things that contribute to a revolution happening now sometimes they take different courses but one of the things that he brings up is is actually a topic that i think we're going to go into more detail in this episode about which is the economic side but i want to hold off on that because we've got that you know that, that that's going to be popping up later on in the episode but there's like there's a couple things in here i might end up actually quoting from it later in the episode when we yeah. actually get to the economic stuff but yeah it's a it's definitely a, a book you know worth worth taking a look at it in case you haven't actually read well, it and they and they do come to the conclusion that that economics is a key component of a, a key catalyst or condition that needs to be met and, and that kind of makes sense right because the economics is something that affects all of us i mean you, you can talk all day long about various you know political sentiments if if once you get to the point where you can't feed your family now I will say this, it's been interesting to note that most of your revolution, most of your vanguard revolutionaries are, are not super poor people. Uh, because again, they're, they're on the verge of like just basic subsistence, if not subsistence itself, right? It's subsistence or, or starvation. You don't have a lot of extra time to sit around coffee shops, writing your manifestos when, when that's the case, right? This it's, is why there's no revolution in North Korea. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, so you, it's usually, you know, middle class or, or maybe the board elite or whatever, or whatever it is that, that participates in this. But, uh, we, we talked about a couple ones that we wanted to throw out here. And this is another one too, for the audience. If you guys think that there's potential catalysts or whatnot that could, and, and, and by a catalyst, again, we don't mean something that just causes, you know, general frustration or anger or a lot of, you know, you know, tweets or X's or whatever they're called now, right? It, it's not that. This is we're talking about something. We're, we're talking about a very, very significant organized um, response. So here's here's a couple of the ones that we just wanted to throw out there that we thought would be interesting for conversation. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up something. George Floyd. So if you actually look at the whole history of, of George Floyd, what, what you actually find is someone that had been violent, unstable. Um, you know, he, he had actually, I think, held a gun to a pregnant woman at one point uh, as, they were, as they were robbing her or threatening her or something like that. He had, he had a long rap sheet. He had, he had all of these things going um, that you would look at and say, okay, this, this obviously was not a good dude. Now, does that mean that the the police handled that situation the way that they they should have? No, not necessarily. Two things can be true at once, right? George Floyd can be a bad dude, and the the police still could have responded to it in a way that wasn't appropriate. I don't it was know, bad. honey. Did you see the Candace Owens interview with his uh, roommates that she did, where she said, "This is the Bible we were reading that you know just earlier that day, and we were all praying together, and we were talking about the Bible." Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. But yeah. I also saw the rest of that where Candace Owens went on <laughs> to expose a lot of things that BLM had did and, and what had happened with that. Now, again, here, here's here's my point here. The point here is not to say that the police did it all right. The point here is not to say that George Floyd, you know, uh, should have died in that exchange. That's not any of it. 
The point is, is that I remember hearing, I think it was Joe Biden saying that even more than Martin Luther King, George Floyd exposed us to the, are you out of your, slap in the face? Are you out of your mind? But the point was, is that George Floyd, a guy that didn't deserve to be anywhere near in the categorization of, of Martin Luther King or, or other civil rights leaders, all of a sudden was a catalyst, not for a, a total revolution, but it was a catalyst for a lot of activism, which actually produced not only protests, but in, in many respects, violent riots. Right? I wonder Mo- if this guy that was like process. completely spun out of his mind high half of half of his adult life would be shocked to find out there were statues of him now. Yeah. So, so the, the point that we need to look at is like that, that's, a, that's an example of something that didn't lead to a revolution, but it did lead to a lot of conditions like you saw in Seattle and Portland, where you actually had people taking over portions of a municipality, not permitting the pro- police to enter and actually having a lot of mayors like quasi supportive of it. Um, and until all of a sudden people started getting murdered inside those areas. So this is, this is what we're talking about. Like we're, we're, we're talking about that. So Here's my first question, and we'll open this up to the audience and everyone here. What happens? We've got several indictments against Trump right now at the federal level, at the um, at the I think at the state level, potentially municipal level. I can't don't quote me on that, but several indictments, federal, state level. What happens if Trump not only gets convicted? Not, we're not talking about convicted and has to pay a fine, or maybe he's a felon and you know whatever, but actually gets thrown in jail. At the same time that Hunter Biden, Joe Biden completely get off, Hunter Biden gets a sweetheart deal. What happens at that point? Is that is that enough of a catalyst to where you would actually see significant portions of the population basically saying, forget it, I'm done. I don't recognize the authority of these institutions or organizations or agencies anymore. Like I'm I'm done. Christian. Oh, you're starting with me. I'm starting with you. Um no, I, I don't think that that's gonna gonna kick everything off. I think that that will lead to some some brief political chaos, some potentially violence, right? We saw that with with George Floyd, but George Floyd's death did not start a revolution. Yeah, it started a summer of people burning down cities and looting stores and business fronts and beating people in the streets. Yeah, that was the, that was the worst manifestation of it. But yeah. it did not create a revolution, it did not fracture the country, it did not lead to civil war or anything like that, right? Right there there was no no national divorce that took place because of the George Floyd riots because of the BLM stuff. So I personally, I mean it's probably really unpopular to say that with with Republicans or conservatives, but whatever. I mean, I'm just sharing So you think what I you think. think if they you think if they haul Trump out in handcuffs in an orange jumpsuit. You'll get a lot of protests. You might get some violence potentially um, from elements of the right. But I, I do not think that that Trump's indictment. I mean, he's he has four indictments, right? Or potentially four. He's got three right now. Fourth one seems like it's coming soon. Um, I don't think that those, even if he gets convicted on any of them, even if he gets sent to prison on any of them, I don't think that's going to trigger a national divorce. I do think that it would trigger a lot of protests. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't I don't think that that is is sufficient to be, that is not a Franz Ferdinand moment, believe it or not, even though that sounds very similar. I, it's not a a Pearl Harbor moment or, a, you know, the German tanks rolling into Danzig. It's it's just, that that would lead to a lot of protests, but that I don't think is sufficient to do create Do you think it would just divorce. be protests though? Like, do you think it would just be protests? I, I think it I think could it be worse be, than that. I think it would be, I think it would be significant. I don't know. 
All right, Tina, what do you think? Uh, okay, so I tend to think that the type of people that would be the most upset about something like this also have jobs to do and families to feed, and so they would get very, very angry as they have in the gotten have gotten in the past over things. They'll probably question, when do we do this? When do we go fight? Like, when does this start? Um, they'll probably question that stuff. They will probably look to people like you at their state legislature level and rattle your cage and talk to you about how you're not doing enough and um, how you're doing, like, why aren't you protecting us? Why aren't you doing something? And so I think... Um, a lot of folks would rattle the cages of those in in political power that are on their side of the aisle and be like, why aren't you doing enough? But I'm not positive they themselves will go and do things because they have families to feed and, and things like that. So there might be like a small element. You guys are having like this no, go ahead. visible argument over here. Okay. Um, there might be like a small element of people that do something physical that do go do something, but I think it'll be squashed pretty quickly. I think that um, the January 6th stuff, uh, for the most part, I think has served its purpose. The purpose being that if you do something, we will go out after you relentlessly and ruin your life and um, and will lie about you in the media and things like that. And so basically what it's meant to be is a deterrent from people who rise up and have a problem with the government ever again. And so they, they want to kind of bring the smack down on them. So I think, I think um, a lot of people will have been adequately deterred from any action they might have taken. Some people may take action and then others will just yell at you for not taking enough action. All right. So no. And, and look, I, I think this is one that actually. Do you could, disagree with that? Um, I think that you would have a lot of people that would fall within the category that you just described. I think there would be a lot of people that they would they would rise up and they would go to a protest and they would, again, they would call my office as like a state legislature. Inevitably, about 80% of the people won't do anything but scream and yell at you. I will say this, though. When you have 20% of the people that are willing to do some pretty significant things, I mean, if, if you look at what was happening in Massachusetts at the beginning of, of the American Revolution, the, the Sam Adams and the Sons of Liberty was not... The, the overwhelming majority of the population, but they were well organized and they were actually very strategic in the things that they hit. Most people don't realize that the Boston Tea Party, people think that this was, you know, something of a mob. This was an incredibly well organized, executed strategy. In, in fact, most, did you realize that, and Christian, counter me if I'm wrong on this, but I'm almost positive um, that when they went and they threw the tea off of the boat, there was a couple things that were very careful about. One, they only threw off, they only damaged property associated with the East India Trading Company, which was a state-sponsored industry of the crown. They actually had to break private locks in order to get to it, and they actually replaced the lock. They actually replaced the locks because they were very, very strategic and targeted on what they were going after. If it wasn't actually a symbol of the government, because the East India Trading Company wasn't private property in the same sense that like you own things. Um, so essentially they gave themselves a lot of moral clarity with respect to what they were going after. Now, I don't know that there's, there's any organization that would be able to do that, but I do believe that if, if they do the perp walk with Donald Trump, they're going to have to be, especially depending on what prison they put him. If it's a federal prison, 
I, I'm telling you right now, that's just going to be. I just be, don't think that's going to happen. That's going to be a nightmare. That's going to be an absolute. That. I think the left absolutely wants it. Um, I think they want to see a perp walk. I don't think they're going to be happy with I think with they want to see that purely not just because they want to see Trump walk, but they want to see our side go ballistic so that they can point at them and be like, see, well, see may, what you maybe, are. Maybe so, but can I, can I say this? When, when January 6th first kicked off and we're all watching these things happen, we're all watching, I mean, I was, I was furious. Um, I was furious because as frustrated as I was with everything that was going on that year. And by the way, my name had been on the ballot that year too. Like I, I had been ahead on election night yeah. and then, and then and they then, found a thumb drive with 16,000 votes in it. Well, I, I don't think it was 16,000, but it, it was, was, it was like 15. I thought, nope. but anyway, the, the point was, is that there, there were, there were things that happened that regardless of whether or not, um, regardless of whether or not it had been illegal, there was things that happened that you would look at and be like, that's, that's shady. That's ridiculous. It shouldn't have happened that way. It was frustrating the whole deal. So like I, I understood the frustration of what was going on, not only on like kind of a national level, but I understood it at a very, very personal level. And I was still furious with this idea that people were going to break into the Capitol and that they were going to threaten violence against anybody that didn't do what they wanted. But here's the other thing that we ended up learning much much later, and, and as soon as Republicans took control and Tucker Carlson got a hold of this stuff, is that there were a lot of people engaging in horrible, violent, you, you, could even, you could even posit insurrectionist behavior. But there was a lot of other people that had been invited into the Capitol and weren't doing anything wrong. They weren't, they weren't threatening members of Congress. They weren't doing any of that stuff. And, and there was a lot of people that fell into one category that got treated like they were in another category. And I think a lot of people, once, once full videos came out and testimony and they started hearing about what was going on, and once again, it was this idea that once again, we've been lied to about what actually happened by members of the press that had an agenda and nothing, none of what I just said takes away from what I believe to be the horrible actions of people that did engage in vandalism and violence and everything else. But to caricature anybody that was there at that point as if they were all a part of this nefarious attempt to overthrow the country, it is verifiably false. And so to your point where, okay, they do the perp walk, Trump is locked up, he's put in federal prison. Yeah, I could definitely see people showing up to that federal prison and being very, very upset about it. Um, and, and I don't know what would happen at that point. Um, I can tell you what would happen. You would have people on the inside sh shooting through the door and killing people on the other side like they did the um, during January 6th. I mean, the one person that got killed during that who was actually killed one there was somebody that had a medical emergency and that's different and then you have somebody that actually was shot through the door through a window i think or through a window whatever she was she was shot by somebody from the inside shooting outward they didn't even know what they were shooting at at that point they didn't even know if there were people with guns on the other side of it so yeah i think people are going to kind of they're going to think twice before kind of storming a door like that but can i just point out that if you're going to have a grievance with your government and systemic problems with your government, the government is the one to show the grievance to. Mm -hmm. The capital's the one to go and like show your grievance to. Not some random person down the road's business that you set on fire and start throwing through things through windows. 
And so the, I feel like there's a real difference between the way the left protests and the way the right protests. The right protests, it's government doing things it shouldn't do mm-hmm. most of the time. And the left protests the government by burning down their neighbor's store. <laughs> All right, let's let's look at the second one. So I don't think anybody here thinks that that Trump being jailed would would actually be enough to kick everything off. Um, but I, I will say this: I think it could have a, a far more. I think it could have a far more significant effect and impact um, than I think you guys do. It'll be a cause, not a catalyst. Okay. So, to use the analogy, yeah. Um, you know the the competing alliance structures that emerged in Europe in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. That's a that's a cause. The Anglo-German naval arms race, that's a cause. Like the German response to the Boer War, that's a cause. Like these are all things that that contribute to the the Balkan Wars, the two Balkan Wars before World War One, the the you know, Italo Turkish War. Like these are all these are all causes yeah. of World War One, but none of them were a catalyst. Mm-hmm. Collectively, though, and there's so many other ones, like the Moroccan Cry. I could just keep going. There's so many examples. If you if you study like pre-World War One diplomacy, you can find like 50 causes. No single one of those causes, again, sent German troops across the border in Belgium. But collectively, all of them taken together, serious historians of the First World War, if I were to write a book about it, yeah. and I and I was to write a book about about the lead up to it, yeah. I, I would have multiple chapters about each of these different events because they all played a huge role in creating the conditions that led to July 1914. But none of them, again, actually triggered the fighting itself. So so to use the Trump example, it's not that, that Trump's indictment or potential imprisonment or conviction is irrelevant, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's not that it's something that is just going to be you know worthy of being totally ignored. But I don't think that that's going to be the spark that leads to a national divorce or a civil war or a revolution or any any combination. No, I, of I those think there are elements that would like that to be. I think it, it'll be like that meme where it's the guy that's got the stick and he's like, come on, do something, <laughs> you know, I, I think I think what it I think what it would do for a significant portion of the there, there's already, I would say, a significant portion of the population which has um, a. a in a mistrust of federal law enforcement um, that that already exists. I think if you found a situation where it was the feds, right, it was the federal government that indicted and, and imprisoned, imprisoned Trump at the same time that Hunter Biden got a sweetheart deal. I, I think what you would see is a significant portion of the population that moves from this idea that the, the problems within these federal institutions are just the leadership. And I think you would actually see a lot more generalized animosity and complete mistrust to where you, you would have, you would have a significant amount, a significant portion of the population that would believe in, in, um, just actively, you know, at least at the very least complete non-cooperation. Um, and I think what it would cause them to do this, this goes to your point, Tina, like what would they do at the state level? I think you would see far more pressure at the state level and on state legislators to pass legislation, basically saying local and state law enforcement are no longer permitted to join joint task force with the federal government. They're no longer permitted. Um, because right now those things are optional. What are are the chances they say? basically the federal government is not allowed to send their law enforcement here and that's, our law enforcement will arrest your law enforcement. That, when does it get to that point? That, that's a different point. So that's what we call interposition. We'll talk about that okay. a little bit later. But I, I do think I do think you would see in certain states where more and more state legislators would actually start to drop bills, which would say 
local and state law enforcement are no longer um, engaged in, in joint task force with the federal government. Now, the, the area where that's probably most common is is counter narcotics, right? It's counter drug and, and, and things of that nature. You could make an argument too that um, it would be assistance with immigration policy. But again, if, if your state government has absolutely no confidence that the federal government is actually going to enforce um, immigration policy, and really all that they're using these joint task force for are to go after, you know, people within their state or narcotics. You, you could actually see an argument being, I could see an argument being made within state legislators of people saying, nope, we don't, we don't want the connection anymore. If the feds want to do it. The feds can do it, but we're not allowing our state law enforcement to assist. Now I will tell you this, that would be incredibly difficult to get through any state legislature, but I, I could definitely see more organizations calling for it because one of the things we've discussed before is the federal government does not have the law enforcement capacity to actually enforce all of these federal laws and regulation. They oftentimes depend on local law enforcement or state law enforcement to assist them in that process because ostensibly there's a benefit to the state to get people that are violating federal law, you know, in, in jail. And so the state and local law enforcement helps. But if you, if you actually create a crisis where the, where a significant portion of the population does not trust federal law enforcement, then, then I think you would see a greater push. And, and to, to Christian's point, I don't think it's a catalyst in and of itself. But if you're starting to lay conditions down where now states are not being cooperative with federal law enforcement, you're inviting situations where the next step is not only are we not going to cooperate, but we don't, we're not going to have you impose that federal law within our jurisdiction. And that's called interposition. It's happened before in this country. It's happened before for reasons that I think all of us at this table would agree with. We've talked about this before. Law enforcement in Wisconsin jailed a, a federal marshal because he was trying to return a runaway slave to captivity, and Wisconsin didn't recognize the, the validity of the Runaway Slave Act. So it, it has happened before. It could happen again. I could see this sort of thing being a catalyst, but I tend to agree that I don't think it's enough in and of itself. All right, let's talk about another one. Let's talk about the second point here. And if you guys have any questions on here, please put questions or, or yeah, yeah, sorry. Do, do what Hamilton says, <laughs> put the questions up and we'll ask. Yeah, there's a um, Q&A link now. All right, so let's let's go ahead and look at, we'll, we'll take a couple of questions before we move on to the second potential catalyst. So Catachrome asks, question, is there still a reason to believe that state authority trumps federal when federal appears to overreach on state authority continuously now? Catacomb, beautiful question. Absolutely wonderful question. Um, and I think this is something... Christian's going to hit on a little bit later when we get into some of the financial stuff. Um, I, I think so. And, and the reason why I say that is because there's still a legal structure in place. The number one thing that has allowed the federal government to kind of trump state authority has not been the federal government just arbitrarily passing laws or regulations, although I would argue they do that. It, it's mainly become a funding mechanism. So because the federal government confiscates so much of our money through federal income tax and through capital gains and through estate taxes and through everything else, the federal government can now say, we want you to do this, or we want you to comply with this, or we want you to work on this, or you won't get the benefit of the federal funding associated with the program. So the 16th Amendment of the Constitution has essentially allowed the federal government to be able to extort the states and, and maybe not coerce. Uh, but in, in some way, let, let's say <laughs> heavily incentivized through an extortionist you know, method, which you could argue is coercion, 
um, that if you don't comply with what we want, then we're going to, we're going to take this money away and you won't get any. And I can tell you right now, there, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on legislators at the state level to go along with these things so that we can get the federal money. Um, oftentimes we'll be accused of leaving all of these dollars on the table or not wanting our constituents to get their money back if we don't comply with federal uh, rules, regulations, or programs. And I, I will tell you right now from personal experience, when guys like me stand up and say, I'm sorry, but this is we are giving into extortion and this is not right, you will get a lot of pushback. Um, so I, I do think the federal government has usurped a lot of what would have been considered tr traditional authorities or kind of um, what you might call you know respective lanes between the states and the federal government through federal funding. Um, but I, I think there, there's still a lot of area for that to go. And the real question is, is how are the states going to push back against the federal government without potentially losing a lot of funding, especially for transportation, for education, for health care that they currently heavily depend upon? And that would actually take a that would actually take a very, very different uh, path. So if you saw a state basically saying that we will no longer require individuals or businesses within our jurisdiction to send money directly to the federal government, they will send it to the state and then the state will send its, its share. You mean how it should be? That, that would be a case where all of a sudden states would be um, less dependent on the federal funding. Um, as a result of that, and it would give it would give a lot more power. But your 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 point is well taken. That right now they've they've really they've really trumped that. No pun intended. Uh, Daffy Duck question: Doesn't the Constitution allow us to create a new government when the government no longer functions to protect the people? So the, this is a bit of a misnomer. I think he's referencing yeah. Article Five potentially. Yeah. That yeah. that's probably what he's referencing. I've I've heard a lot of people bring up this this belief that the constitution has some clause written into it about how we can you know change or overthrow the government there's it, th th there, there's nothing in there about overthrowing the government there's a mechanism in there the article 5 convention of states mm -hmm. that allows for constitutional amendments to be adopted through the state legislatures directly rather than going through the, the traditional process that we've done with every single amendment so yeah. far, which is it goes through Congress and then it's submitted to the state legislatures for their approval or rejection. That's how every amendment's been passed, but there is a second mechanism that we've never used before. And part of the reason we've never used it is because people don't really know how it would work. Conservatives are actually very heavily divided on Article 5. You talk yeah. to one and they'll be like, oh, it's the greatest idea to reign in the federal government ever. And then you talk to another group of people and, and they will think that it's a backdoor for us to become South Africa or Venezuela. Yeah. So it's, honestly, it's probably never going to happen. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I feel like that you would rather, you we would, we would be more like, if we ever got to a point where an Article 5 actually could happen, we're probably already at a point where we would just have another constitutional convention outright. Yeah. Like, it, it, right? It, another Philadelphia. I mean, to, to his point, yes, they're, they're, to, to Daffy's point, the, the Constitution obviously allows for itself to be amended. And, and theoretically, it can be amended in any way that you can get a vast majority of the American population through its state legislatures and the federal government to essentially concede to. Um, the, the thing is, is that's obviously very, very difficult to achieve. Um, now, the other thing that, that you may be referring to is what uh, Jefferson talked about in the Declaration of Independence is that essentially when a, uh, when a people um, you, you know, essentially has to throw off the bonds it has with, with its current nation in order to, to go a different path, that they, first of all, that they should actually appeal to the general population and provide, provide the reasons, but they do have an inherent right to be able to do so. 
And, and so the, there is that component, both from a philosophical standpoint, and then as with Article 5, there's, there's a legal component for how the Constitution could be altered. Um, but that, that's it. Let's go to this other one here, and then we're going to get on to the second catalyst. If the issue is federal extortion, why not pull all tax rights back to the state and have the Fed deal directly with the states for funding instead of a population tax? Brother, you're speaking my language. <laughs> um, I, I think it's I think it's actually a good idea. O- originally, when you look at federal taxing authority before the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, which, by the way, didn't come across as what 1919. I think was the 16th Amendment was ratified. 16th Amendment is 1913. 13. Thank you. It's pre World um, War One. Thank you. Yeah, and 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 World War One was in large part the justification for it. Um, but if if you're going to do that again, it would be fairly difficult because the 16th Amendment of the Constitution does give the federal authority the 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 constitutional authorization to tax people directly. Uh, we did an episode once on parts of the Constitution you shouldn't like, and one of the things we talked about was a repeal of the 16th Amendment. Now, the federal government still had mechanisms to fund itself, but it was it was largely through things like tariffs and excise taxes. So it had to do more with, with foreign trade than it had with direct uh, taxes to individuals within the United States. All right, let's move on to the second potential catalyst. This would be a complete left-wing control of the federal government. Now, we've already said that's a potential condition, right? But the catalyst would be court packing. So let's say you get a, you know, Elizabeth Warren is the Senate majority leader. Gavin Newsom is president of the United States. Um, I I don't know, pick your, your speaker, you know, Hakeem Jeffries is is speaker of the house. Let's make it AOC. And they, (laughs) let's, let's not, oh my gosh, let's not go total clown communist clown world yet. Um, but they decide that, because Elizabeth Warren has already said this, there, there's been significant people within the House of Representatives that have said this, they basically come to the conclusion that we, we have to expand um, the membership of the Supreme Court. And so they add, you know, whatever, four positions. And lo and behold, all four positions are extreme, woke, progressive members of the Supreme Court. Now, so that here's the question. We're going to start with Tina this time. They get complete control of the federal government, which we've already said is a condition. The catalyst is they actually go in, they pack the court, they add four other four new positions, and they are all like woke progressive justices. Like we, we just get a bunch more Sotomayors. I feel like that would be an adequate catalyst. I think I think that would be you you'd get a lot of people on the right. You'd even get people on the left that were were, were more true to uh, what the democratic principles used to be, you know, the people that were still kind of hanging on to the left. I think you would get a big section of the independents as well. They would start really realizing something is completely wrong here. Um, Although I do think that the, I mean, the media has lost a lot of its power. And so maybe people wouldn't just march along and do whatever the media says. But in the past, that's kind of been the case they they will spin the narrative however they have to to keep the people um happy uh with with whatever's going on with the on the left and so um it really depends like if the media has lost its stranglehold as i think it kind of has um i think that would be a catalyst that would cause cause people to do something however um it would really require some type of of leadership to get behind because everybody wants to do something but no one knows quite what to do at this point and so then they'll be looking to people and going who's going to lead us to get out of this mess and and so i think that would start with some kind of a leader like finding a leader i think 
that would then spur on a catalyst of that leader getting. Okay. So Tina said, Tina says court packing could be a sufficient catalyst to really tip things off. And again, tip things off doesn't mean that Florida declares war against the federal government. Tip things off just means it's like, yep, that's the rallying cry that everyone uses. So Tina says, yes, that's a sufficient catalyst. Christian. I think that it would be yes if the circumstances in which court packing took place were through an election where the overwhelming majority of the public is actually heavily divided on who won. So I I brought this up before we started recording. Imagine in, in, in 2020, you can be on whatever position that you want. Yeah. But when you look at the official tallies, even if you think those official tallies are illegitimate, yeah. you can look at the official tallies of, of the vote, you know, totals in Pennsylvania and in and, and Arizona, Arizona Wisconsin, and Georgia, right? The states that basically decided the election. You can also throw Michigan in there if you want. Even if you think it's illegitimate, it, the fact is, is that the margin of victory in those states was sufficient that, again, if you don't agree, you still know people who do agree. Yeah. Right. You know people on the right who do agree. I know people, my, my parents are, are still utterly convinced that the election was rigged. Yeah. But they know that there's other people on the right that don't agree with that. Yeah. Now imagine if if 2020 had, had been decided by the same margin as 2000. Imagine if we had a 2000 situation in Pennsylvania where the election had come down to 500 votes in Pennsylvania. Hanging chads? <laughs> instead of 100,000 votes in yeah. Pennsylvania. It's yeah. a lot harder to manufacture hundreds of thousands of fraudulent ballots. Again, even if you think that it was stolen, yeah. the fact is, is that the margin was large enough that there's enough people on the right that were convinced it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, right? There's people still like a Mike segment. That, well, just, just like there was an, yeah. in 2000, I remember 2000 vividly. There was enough people on the left that were not convinced that it was stolen. There's some that thought it was, but there was a, not enough to convince it was stolen to actually cause some We sort weren't of as issue. polarized though today. No, but that's the point. Right? Like right. I watched um, a few months ago, I watched the concession speech from Al Gore um, that he gave in December 2000. Yeah. And say, say whatever you want about Al Gore, I, I obviously vehemently disagree with his politics. I yeah. never would have voted for him. But if you actually watch that concession concession speech, and yes, it came after he filed all these lawsuits and took it sure. all over the Supreme Court. But if you watch the concession speech, it's very gracious. It's very unifying he he says over and over again that you know we all need to rally behind george bush you know we're one country he's he, he it's a very very it's actually it's conciliatory it's a very conciliatory he's yes he was a sore loser up until that point but he actually was he he he, he went down pretty honorably at that point mm-hmm. and nobody ever would have given that speech today no and no. either party it, it, I, I seriously encourage everybody to go and watch Al Gore's concession speech in December 2000 when they're done watching the show and then ask yourself, would any politician in today's political environment ever say the type of stuff that he said yeah. in that speech? And that's what I mean by well, this. And there, but the thing is, is there's a much bigger difference divide now, like you were saying. Much bigger divide back then. It you could be almost correct in saying that all these politicians are the same. There's not much difference between them, um, and and the differences you could find would be a little more slight. You know, um, I mean, there's certain things that have always divided us, like the abortion issue and things like that. Mm. But but other than the abortion issue, a lot of the fiscal stuff would be very slight. Um, a lot of your e- even stuff with the Constitution would be more slight uh, or, or less magnified. Um, and so I think now 
you are we are really diametrically opposed well, I, well, in I, many areas. You know what they say? So many more areas of life than we used to be. I, Republicans I, are Democrats from twenty years ago, <laughs> well, but we're it, not. Here's, here's what here's what I'll tell you. I, I I don't think there's any question. I don't think there's any question that conditions are very very different now than they were in two thousand. I think the point that Christian's making, and and I tend to agree with this, is we're talking about court packing as a potential catalyst. That's the topic. Mm-hmm. Tina's saying that yes, that is a that is a sufficient catalyst to to engender a response, and we're going to get later. We're going to talk about some of the potential responses to some of these. You're saying that you believe that the court packing is a sufficient catalyst if it happens as a result of a highly highly contested election. It, it cycle. needs to look extremely illegitimate, and, and don't get me wrong, court packing is makes, illegitimate in of itself. Yeah, but imagine a scenario where. The Democrats win an election in a landslide, like like a, a Obama type, you know, two thousand eight landslide. Let let alone you know any of the landslides that took place before that, like FDR or something like that. Yeah. Imagine that they win in another two thousand eight landslide by like seven or eight points, and then they have huge majorities in Congress, and then they pass it. Yes, would a lot of people be upset? People like us at the table would be very upset. A lot of people might get politically active because of it, but. It would be really hard to to argue that it's illegitimate. I would still argue the action is illegitimate, but it would be really hard for me to convince my fellow countrymen that that you know they stole this, they they rammed this through, and now they've 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 shredded the Republican Constitution and just guaranteed their iron you know grip support over over our government, and now they're going to impose our will on us because it's going to be like, well, the public voted for this. Okay, well here's if here's, it's if it's a two thousand scenario, yeah. And it's decided by 500 votes in Pennsylvania. And it's like, no, every single in this environment, every single Republican is is utterly convinced that, no, this is stolen. Because I'll be honest, if it's 500 votes in Pennsylvania, oh, you can find 500 votes in Philadelphia. (laughs) Yeah. And so like I was. You can find 500 votes at like two precincts. Yeah. I I was I was not really on board with with all of the election lawsuit stuff in 2020 because I'm I'm an election nerd and I did the math and I was like, I, I find it very difficult for you to manufacture hundreds of thousands of votes across four states. But manufacturing hundreds of votes in one state and that determines everything. And then the party that wins that then goes on to, again, pack I think run roughshod over the Constitution and, and pack the court. Oh, at that point, I could totally see conservative states saying the Supreme Court is an illegitimate institution and we're not going to listen to any of their rulings. Okay. That's gonna, the catalyst. I, I will right, totally say that the minute they pack it, no matter what, even if even if they legitimately won the minute they pack it, I will not consider anything legitimate that comes out of that court. I'm going to tell you right now, I tend to agree with Tina on this one. I, I think court packing is so egregious. Um, I think court packing is so egregious that even if, and, and when we say highly contested, now I, I agree with you that if it's highly contested and this happens, that's that's icing on the cake. But I'm saying you got the cake either way. And the reason for that is because I don't believe we're going to see any election cycle that is just going to be so over. You're, I, I don't think we're going to see any more election cycles like um, 1984, right? I think, I think Not, Christian's like, saying that in order to get mass buy-in, no, no, I get that's that. what you're going to have here's, to yes. but here's yes. But here's the point. Here's the point I'm making. This is the part where I, I kind I think that makes it easier to get mass buy-in. Easy. Right. I, I think that's a, that's a solid argument. But I think court packing in and of itself is, is so significant. If you had a scenario where, let's say, Joe Biden wins reelection by two percentage points. Right. Or, or he, he wins it by a similar margin as what we saw happen in 2020. And if you see the Democrats take back control of the House, they're not going to take the House by 42 seats. They're going to take it by like 10 tops. 
right? They're not going to take the Senate by five seats. Well, they already have the Senate, right? But they're not going to they're not going to drastically improve their lead. They're just going to the difference will be is who will who will be the thought leaders within those institutions when they win. And I don't think a I don't think a speaker Jeffries and a and a Senate majority leader, you know, I don't Sanders. think it, I don't think it'll be Schumer next time. <laughs> it'll be interesting to see who it I think Schumer is. will stay as But he he could even if he does though he would totally pack the he'll court cave. and get the votes he'll cave right and this is the part where I think at that point I just don't see it so I think I think that one is a potential catalyst all right let's go to well do we have any questions yes right. I per, I would disagree and I don't think that Supreme Court packing packing is a sufficient catalyst because I don't th- I think there are more Americans than we realize that don't know that there are nine justices currently I think that That's if sad. Yeah, I think that if they packed the Supreme Court and then shortly after they did things like removing Second Amendment rights and things of that nature, I think that that combination could cause a sufficient uprising. Okay, but so Brian Betts asked a question. You say court packing is so bad. Why are you not complaining about what did what uh, I think McConnell did blocking Obama's appointment while rushing two through for Trump? Okay, Brian, there's a big difference. This is the part where we got to be intellectually honest. There is a huge difference between court packing and the Senate using its advice and consent to try to make sure that they get their candidates. Court packing is, by definition, you are adding new members to the Supreme Court. Right. I, I can point to all kinds of situations where senates have, you know, like for instance, it was Harry Reid that changed the whole nature of uh, the filibuster rules with respect to selecting Supreme Court justices. And I actually, remember actually it was lower court justices. Lower court, sorry, lower court justices. And I remember Mitch McConnell at the time saying Democrats are going to regret doing this probably sooner than they anticipate. And lo and behold, they did. So I, I don't I, I think if, if you're a Democrat and you're looking at that, you're you're furious with Mitch McConnell for holding up um, selecting two more Supreme Court justices uh, until they had a Republican president. But to suggest that Democrats wouldn't have theoretically done the same thing, I, I, I think is perhaps a little bit intellectually dis- or dishonest or at the very least, you know, showing a little bit of Naive. bias. But but here's what I will say. Had McConnell said we're going to add two members to the court. Like it had had Trump, McConnell, and um, what's his face, uh, who was Speaker of the House. Horrible decision to make him Speaker. Um, Ryan? Yeah, Ryan. Had they all said, hey, now's our chance. We're going to add two new members of the Supreme Court or three members of the Supreme Court. That would have been legitimate court packing. And, and I can tell you right now. The left just, wouldn't have liked it. Let, let me just say it for public record right now. I completely oppose court packing, period, the end. I don't care who does it. Right. Once you start the court packing, that is a never ending cycle of just bad decision making that takes place that completely undermines what the Supreme Court is supposed to be. And so I don't want either side to do it. Now, again, to your point, totally understand why people would be mad at McConnell for holding that up. But they were technically within their yeah. rights within the Senate. He was just, using leverage given to him by Democrats previously. Well, and, well, in that case, it was more it's it's leverage given to him by the Constitution. Senate right. has advice and consent. But the whole filibuster situation happening is is what provided extra leverage. The difference, yeah. though, is that the filibuster is not in the Constitution. It, no, it's a and, Senate And it rule. was Democrats that suspended the filibuster for lower court judges, and so then McConnell simply did it for the Supreme Court. We're inching yeah. towards eventually abolishing the filibuster altogether, and when that happens, I actually think that'll be another contributing factor, not not a spark, because I don't think yeah. most people know what the filibuster is, but that'll be another contributing factor that leads to more political radicalization. And maybe this, this leads us to the next point that you want to get to, Nick. Um, which is like some of these these cultural 
problems, you know, the the whole culture wars in general. One thing that I've been reading a lot about lately, and I've talked to you about this, is what happened in the lead up to the Spanish Civil War. And the reason that I, I've been so interested in this is because I think a lot of people have this idea that a national divorce or a civil war in the U.S. will be like, you know, the 1860s one here, yeah, yeah. where it's, you know, states, you know, declaring on each other and then lining up armies and then shooting each yeah. other. Like, no, I think it'll be more similar to the Spanish Civil War, which is a breakdown in civil order and government where a huge chunk of the population views that government as illegitimate and actively hostile to them yeah. and then start arming themselves to defend themselves against the mobs of supporters of that government coming to kill them and take their stuff. Mm-hmm. And then that just spills over into more and more mob violence, fuels more and more distrust in government, which fuels more and more mob violence. And eventually you get a point, you get a situation where you know, there's already a war going and, and people are just waiting for something to actually trigger it. And the thing that triggered it in Spain was an attempted coup d'etat that only halfway succeeded. Right. And so I feel like that if people want an idea of a hypothetical, terrible future in which these things happen, I would encourage them to go look at it. The lead up to the Spanish civil war is, is kind of a template because that is a much more messy scenario than the rigid structure that we had in the American civil war. Well, we're going to, we're going to get some questions down. Another thing too, I want to point out is that we've, we've made some changes with respect to how we do the show. Now we, we try to keep the show within about two hours because we also have an audio audience and we're trying to be respectful of their time. We love who we love. Absolutely love our audio, audio, audio only audience. Um, but at that two hour mark, we, we tend to kind of, um, wrap up everything that we've been talking about. So we're providing kind of a complete show for all of our audio listeners as well, or anybody that can't sing around, but we do stay after that to try to get to as many of your questions as possible. So if we don't, Get to your question right now. We are doing our best to try to get to all of them, um, and and we're trying to prioritize them based off of the topic as much as possible. Uh, but if you want to stay around and ask questions after that, we, we try to allow for some more time where we just do questions. And so, we are getting so many questions now because yeah. there's a lot more viewers. So it is really possible we won't get to m- to some of the questions, and, and we're just not going to be able to. At some point, we're there, just there not going to be able to keep up. There are quite a few that I've been holding for after 2 p.m. Okay. Okay. So let's look at this. David Harley asked, what percentage of states do you think would push back against the federal government? I feel like most smaller states who may want to may not because of a fear of being the only state pushing back. David, I I think that's a good, I I think that's a a good assessment. I I think it's going to take, it's going to take major states that are willing to do it. So obviously I think when we think of major states that would be potentially willing to push back against the federal government, either through nullification, which is refusing to enforce federal law or interposition, which is the active um, preventing the federal government from enforcing their own laws. You look to states like Texas, you look to states like Florida that might be willing to do that. And then I think what you would see is, is areas where a lot of it might actually be based on, on trade. So some would be based off of the federal government and their response. What does the federal government do to those, those states? But I do think you would need to see bigger states willing to step up and doing that. That's not to say that you might not find a very, very spunky legislature in a smaller state basically willing to say, screw this. Um, I, I think that's possible. You, you look at, you look at certain places like Idaho right now. Um, look, they're, they're not having some of this. 
Um, but I, I do think that's what it, it's going to require. You're going to see some some bigger states that are willing to step up, push back, and I think that's going to give some encouragement, especially to the states that probably border those that have similar feelings. Oklahoma and Texas are two that uh, you could definitely see working cooperatively. They they may hate each other's football teams, but they got a lot in common. Other than that, I, um, I just I just read a comment that I have to read off. It's from Sir of Potatoes on the MTA chat. He said the catalyst will be when Christians 100 tabs self delete, and then he brings the whole world. <laughs> down with him <laughs> there would be hell to pay <laughs> I, I if my like, tabs get deleted i feel like we need bingo cards that have to do with things christian says like references to the spanish civil war the french revolution his master's degree or you know some other like vague i you love know, history i don't know, I know what to say I hear, right. you know si- I, i'm just i'm just joking with you i, I believe love you, it Christian. was i believe it was cicero who said that if you don't oh, read history or don't study history those who don't study history will forever remain children right. i, I that, that that's not the exact quote obviously but like no, we love I mean, it, but it would provide a really fun drinking game. So Ro- Rocky, Rocky Top Tom asked, will anyone dissect this, uh, that this is all byproduct of the corporatization of uh, the false two-party system? Um, I, I, I don't know, because it, when, I, when I look at multi-party systems in Europe, I don't see, especially in parliamentarian democracies, I, I don't see that they've, they've arrived at a better conclusion than what we have here within the United States. I think the two-party system is, is largely become popular because of what you might call uh, the winner-take-all in most of our elections. Some people have advocated for things like a ranked choice system, which is horribly unpopular with Republicans right now. So I, I think that, I, I don't know, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that when, when you have a, a quest to have political power, parties or organizations around that and around certain values are, are going to develop. And other parties are permitted to take place within the system right now. Now, I will say, I think the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are given unfair advantages sometimes in state law. I've actually tried to correct for some of that in Virginia. It's very difficult, as you can imagine. So I, I don't think it's I don't think it's the overall cause of it, I, but I do think in some ways it could potentially uh, contribute. Um, Hamilton, do you have other ones that you were highlighting for us here? Uh, not right now. Okay, let's let's move on to a a third component, a third potential uh, catalyst, and this I think kind of this this delves into what Hamilton was saying, right? So Hamilton was saying, look. You have a court packing. I think that's bad. I think that gets a lot of people upset. But you need the packed court to do something that would really cause the, cause the problem. And so deciding to go with something incredibly controversial, what if a packed Supreme Court actually incorporated maps, better known as minor attracted uh, persons. No, better known as pedophiles. Or, or what they actually are, which is pedophiles. If they actually created that as a protected class, I, I would like to go first on this one. Oh, oh, now you want to yeah, yes, now you want to yes. jump yeah. in. All right, Hamilton, um, go ahead. I think the initial reaction we would see to that is conservatives would definitely move to states where they did not have to deal with that and surround themselves with like-minded people. But I think if the federal government forced families to or made it illegal for families to seek education through other alternatives rather than the public school system or made private schooling illegal or homeschooling illegal in order to enforce that, I think that that would be a efficient catalyst all right so hamilton's going with that i'm Christian. not sure it would even take enforcing i i don't think that to be on 
it's dangerous to say, I don't think that's going to happen because I don't think that half but of what we're did. living through. There was a lot of things I didn't think would have, would yeah. be possible five there, years there ago. There are so it's many things, things that were not on my bingo the, card the, the, for 2020. I, I don't, I don't know of a single, let me put it this way. I don't know of a single Democrat candidate in the Commonwealth of Virginia, not Massachusetts, not California, not, Sh- not Illinois. I don't know a single Democrat running for office in the Commonwealth of Virginia that would agree with the statement only women can get pregnant. No, I, I, they, I, they, they would feel they would feel like they had yeah. to categorize it. Well, you know, a woman is anyone that defines themselves I, I, as a woman. Yeah, We've I, gone I know the so far in academia right now is 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 really force feeding a lot of these people the idea that um, it's nothing more than a sexual preference. Well, if they're if they're learning that in academia right now, in twenty years they're going to be legislating it because those are the people in the legislature at that point. I. I, I I get all of that, and and you you know the slippery slope fallacy is not a fallacy; it's real. It's real, and we're falling off. We're the slope watching at this it happen point. in real time. I I totally get all of that, but I don't. We we did not have a revolution or a national divorce or any of these other things when they did all of the stuff that led up to now. Mm-hmm. I mean, Nick. I brought this up a few episodes ago, and you kind of well, got, just, just, got mad. Just make, your, just make your argument. Just make your argument. Nick, they're mutilating children right now. Yeah. And we don't have people staging a revolution over that. There, There's literally a medical complex happening in red states as well, not just blue states, where they're mutilating children. And they're also indoctrinating children, even in red states. And you don't see people taking to the streets and... Oh, literally like overthrowing governments and and committing acts of violence over that. And the reason why is because ultimately the, the right is not inclined to use violence as a political tool like the left does. They're simply not inclined to do it. And and I, I think part of the reason why is is just because of of inherent dispositions with how the left and right view world, you know, the world society and how they operate in their day-to-day lives. You have got to push people on the right very, very far for them to have a pushback. And they don't push back gradually where it's like, oh, they do this and then they do that and then they do that and then they get violent and then they get more violent. No, no, it's it's a switch that kicks off where the right goes from not being violent to being very, very violent. When you, when you look at right-wing backlashes they're not these gradual things they happen suddenly and um in fact i think that the term that that some philosophers use is the odin switch right where but but the the point is is that you don't see the right doing this stuff over the fact that they're literally mutilating children right now and indoctrinating them to hate their country hate their culture hate their history hate their families and yet the right isn't doing anything it's that we're talking about. It's not that they're not doing well, anything. I, I, it's that they're not revolting fully. There's yet. no national divorce. There's, there, there is no national divorce. There's no civil, civil war. Well, There's that, no well, wait revolution. A wait, wait, wait a second. Things. Wait a second. No, what you see is state legislatures passing laws, which says you can't do that in our state. And then the federal government is not coming in and telling them that they can't do it. The difference here would be the federal government is saying this is now a constitutionally protected right. Now, Special Patel in the, in the comments said they would never try to make maps a protected class. I mean, come on, how? Huh. Let me explain. Wait a second. First of all, I think it's I think we've gotten to a point where anytime we say they would never do that, I'm a I'm a little bit skeptical, right? Because there's a lot of things that I would have thought nobody wanted to do five years ago that now people are not only fine with, but they will call you a bigot if you oppose it. It starts with normalizing I, I, it. I.e. pornography within kids 
public school libraries. And anybody that's going to tell me that's not happening and anybody that's going to tell me that nobody wants that to happen, I'm going to tell you right now, you are either horribly ignorant about what is going on. And I can speak from specifics in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I serve on the education committee in the Commonwealth of Virginia, right? I've seen the books. So no, nobody is going to tell me, but I, I will tell you this much. Anytime we bring it up, anytime we bring it up, and I talked to one of my Democrat colleagues. You know what I hear? Nick, nobody wants that. Yes, you do. Not everybody. Not everybody that's a Democrat wants those books in there. But I will tell you right now, when we had a bill in Virginia which said if these books containing this sort of pornographic material, and I'm talking about pictures, not just literary stuff, Okay, I'm, I'm not talking about a verse in the Bible describing somebody sleeping with somebody else. I'm talking about graphic depictions of, of children engaging in sexual activity. With adults. All right, that's what I'm talking about. And all our bill said, we didn't even ban the book. All the bill said was, if that book is in your public school library, you have to have a list on your website telling parents that the, what, what are there, what's there, and you have to allow parents the option to opt their child out of being able to check out that book. Not one Democrat voted for that bill. Not one. So I am tired of hearing nobody wants to. But to your question on how would they do it, let me tell you how they would potentially do it. You would create, the, the way this would, this would potentially happen at the federal level has to do with things like age of consent laws. And so what they would start to do is they would start to blur the line with respect to adult, non-adult, and consent. We already have a framework for this in the United States. Consent laws are not the same as when you become an adult in most states. What you would start to see at that point is the argument that you as an autonomous human being and people mature at different levels. So clearly people can make you know, informed decisions about their own sexuality. We're already seeing it right now where Kids at a very young age are having discussions about sexuality, which I would argue right now, they do not have the mental capacity to fully understand what is going on. When you are giving puberty blockers to a 10-year-old and people say, that's not happening, when the hell do you think puberty takes place? If you're not giving them to a 10 or 11, I got news for you, you're not blocking anything. So when you're giving drugs and you're now engaging in surgeries at very young ages, don't tell me that it's impossible for someone to come to the conclusion that the same child that possesses the mental capacity to be able to make that decision for themselves and in some states be able to do it with complete parental opposition, don't tell me that we're so far away from a situation where a packed Supreme Court could come to the conclusion that, well, of course, a child could decide to engage in this sort of sexual expression. So it's not as if the Supreme Court is going to write a law which says, hey, pedophilia is now legal. That's not what they're going to do. They're going to categorize it as a form of sexual identity and sexual expression, which is critical to that identity and therefore must be protected. That's how they do it. Yeah. That is and how they're they would repressed. Do it. They're repressed. I mean, so, Brian, so look, Brian Bett sat here and said, well, it is a sexual preference. It's just one that you're never supposed to act on. Well, I'm sorry, but most people act on whatever their pre sexual preference is. That's, that's the next step. And that's where child pornography comes in and things like that. And these people will look at this stuff thinking that they're satiating their appetite for it. But really what it does is it feeds the beast and they go and then they act on it. I mean, this idea that 
we're going to just look at it like it's just some kind of sexual preference. No, it's a sexual deviancy. It's a sexual perversion. It's disgusting. And these people should be separated from society, whether they've acted on it or not. If you're turned on by a little tiny child, chances are you're a little bit outside of what societal norms would say is acceptable already in other areas. I mean, people who would go and touch a child I am very sorry, but you are not going to get any concessions out of me saying that it's just a sexual preference. No, it's a perversion. It's disgusting. And these people need to be weeded out of society, period, the end. And that's exactly what would happen if these guys became a protected class. Oh, protected from what? You're going to start, you're going to start seeing, I'm telling you, states would start having open seasons for your protected class. So here, here's what I'll here's what I'll say. The, the other thing that I will say about this is that part of the problem um, is that again, in in 1977 there was a petition in France in order to repeal a whole host of age of consent laws. Who was that petition signed by? It was signed by Michel Foucault. It was signed by Jacques Derrida. It was shi- I think it was signed by uh, Leotard. It was signed by basically a whole host of left-wing philosophers tied in with postmodernism and deconstructionism. So this idea that this is something that the Supreme Court could never do, again, don't think about it in terms of the Supreme Court coming out and just making some positive statement for X, Y, and Z. What, What they're doing is they're creating a category, and that category will implicitly lead to a whole host of questions on what age people can actually engage in certain behaviors with to include what age they can consent to it with people that are far older than them. That's the scary part of something like this happening. So to the extent that it is possible, I, I do. Like 10 years ago, I would have said, absolutely not. This is not possible. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. Nobody thinks this is okay. I don't believe that anymore because I've seen too much evidence to the contrary on other things that I would consider to be adjacent. And well, so you that, that's why- people that are that, reasonable making concessions for- for it at this point it's being normalized yeah so and if you don't think it's happening so that that's no. the that's the reason why i put it up here as a catalyst in, in part because to christian's point how do you get conservatives to actually like get so mad that they're willing to completely up in their lives because that's what we're talking about with revolution. This is one of the this is one of the things that I tell people all the time. It, you, when people talk with this bravado about like it's just time to fight. I'm like how much fighting have you done in your life? I've been to combat. I've seen what it looks like. You don't want it in your neighborhood. You don't want it in your state. You don't want it in your country. Believe me. But the question is, is what motivates people to such a degree to where they're saying, they're willing to say, I don't care anymore. This is too evil. And that is, that is usually discussed. Mm -hmm. And something like this happening at a Supreme court level where the federal government is now telling you, I don't care what state you live in, you will enforce this as a law. And if you don't, the federal government and federal law enforcement will come in, arrest you, and prosecute you for denying someone their constitutionally protected civil liberties. You want to talk about a catalyst? Does anybody imagine, does anybody imagine that if something like that happened at the federal level, a Governor Ron DeSantis, right, or a Governor Abbott, would just sit there and be like, well, I, I guess that's just the law of the land. No, you would see Texas Rangers, Texas state troopers. You'd see Florida state troopers going in there going, 
you are not arresting. Like we convicted this person of this, of this crime and they're going to go to jail in Florida under Florida state law. And now the federal government is going to come in and try to prevent that from happening. You would see Florida state law enforcement. You would see local state law enforcement. You would see sheriffs saying, try it. Because there is such an element of disgust associated with that, that they would be willing to, I, I honestly think that's a point where they would be willing to risk everything in order to actually fight back against that. And then the federal government would have to make some real decisions on what it is, how dedicated are they to enforcing that particular ruling, right? All right, so there's, there's my take on it. All right, we got, we're gonna, do we got a couple more questions? Let's keep moving in uh, around two o'clock. Okay. So we got, we got one more. So that, that was another catalyst. I think the the general consensus here is Christian's not all that sure that this is something that's, you would say it's probably not something that's really possible. And and even if it happened, what? A contributing factor. But I mean, again, I, I look at where we are right now and I don't, I don't see any reason for the slippery slope to stop until we get to this final point that you're well, about the distinction to get to. is the distinction is the federal versus the state. I, I, I just want to be abundantly clear. None of the points that we have brought up so far in this podcast, I think are going to contribute to a national divorce, civil war revolution. I, I, I don't think any of the points that we've discussed so far are going to be the catalyst that actually kicks off any of these. I think all of them could potentially be contributing factors if, and when they happen or to varying degrees that they happen. But I don't think any of these things are actually going to, again, kick off any of those three things, national divorce, civil war, revolution. Yeah. Okay. I think this fourth point will though. All right. So here we go. The fourth point, this is the one Christian has just been Here's waiting the one for. Christian's waiting for. Christian's it. waiting. So we're going to start when we make him go last. No, I'm kidding. This is Christian's <laughs> no, no, catalyst. Please so, have so, me go last so, if you want. So no. All right. So the, the next thing that we're going to talk about is, is a larger category of major economic upheaval mm-hmm. and specifically what we would call sovereign debt crisis or maybe collapse of the dollar. Go, Christian, go ahead and lead into. So I want to read um, a paragraph from, uh, from Crane Brinton's book, um, The Anatomy of Revolution. He has this um, summary that he writes when he discusses the old regime before revolution actually kicks off. And I think that it's, it's, there's a lot in here that, that, that I think you guys are going to appreciate. Here's what he says in the summary. This is the conclusion of this, of this chapter. He says, In summing up, the most striking thing we must know in all of these preliminary signs, government deficits, more than usual complaints over taxation, conspicuous government favoring of one set of interests over another, administrative entanglements and confusions, transfer of allegiance of the intellectuals, loss of self-confidence among many members of the ruling class, conversion of many members of that class to the belief that their privileges are unjust or harmful to society, the intensification of social antagonisms, the stoppage of certain points of the career um, uh, uh, um, of the career open to talents, usually in the professions such as the arts or perhaps white collar jobs generally, the separation of economic power from political power and social distinction. Some, if not most of these signs may be found in almost any modern society at any time. And then he goes on to say, we are not, however, altogether helpless before some mystical gift for some short-term prophecy in the successful diagnosis of a revolution. Um, And we can, in this instance, um, see further signs to revolution in all four of the examples that he brings up, English Civil War, or English Revolution, American Revolution, French Revolution, and Russian Revolution. And all of them, and especially in France and Russia, there is, at the actual outbreak of revolution approaches, increasing talk of revolution, increasing consciousness of social tension, increasing cramp and irritation, 
prophets of evil there always are. <laughs> but, and then he mentions that there were people predicting a French Revolution 40 years before it actually happened. Yeah. Um, but then he goes on to basically say that there's increasing discussion, you know, chatter in the air of something's going to happen. Yeah. And, and even though each of these points that he brings up, mostly economic related that I just read through, he says that, yeah, any of these things can happen in societies at any point in time. In fact, any society, at least one of those points is happening. But what you need is you need a combination of all of them coming together at once. And it needs to have a catalyst that is driven by economics. His, his thesis here is that you get a revolution, you get political upheaval that's not settled through the ballot box. When you have an era of growing economic prosperity, even if it's somewhat modest, mm -hmm. that then comes to a halt. And the reason that it comes to a halt, people conclude, is because of government ineptitude or government action directed against them, against their own economic self-interests. And when that happens, it's always fermented through a crisis of the government itself, Members of the government losing, you know, losing interest within that that government, you know, feeling like that that the government that they're serving is inept, and then the government itself being bankrupt. So, so the phrase could be that in France before the revolution, in many ways, people have this picture that before the French Revolution, the people were poor and it was the peasants that rose up, and it was not the serfs that rose up in France. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't even the serfs that rose up in Russia. The, the Bolsheviks were not the, the peasants in the fields. They used peasants in the fields, but Lenin was not a peasant, right? Like it, in, in France, it was the country was actually getting richer before the revolution. And then something happened to stop that economic progress. There were many things that contributed to it. And at the same token, the government itself was bankrupt, utterly bankrupt. They had been funding the you know wars in, in, in the Netherlands and in the Low Countries for, for decades under Louis XIV, and then they funded the American Revolution. And so what you get is a government-triggered economic, government economic crisis at the same time that the rest of society is relatively well off. So, so uh, okay, so in the U.S., because right now we are, we're, we're the wealthiest nation in the world by far. But the government is dirt broke. It, well, but yeah, the, the, the government is obviously over $30 trillion in debt. However, people have been listening to the government is in horrible debt for decades now. They don't by that it's the same problem that that it was in part because it wasn't a, as big a problem in the 80s because we weren't in as much debt but now you have a combination of massive amounts of debt you have inflationary monetary policy and, and you have to have that inflation in order to actually pay for all of the government programs that the federal government has now taken responsibility medicaid medicare social security things like that so the point is is that okay at what point what do you see uh, because economic crisis can mean a lot of things. What do you see as the point where it's like, oh, crap? That's a good point. Economic crisis could be, I mean, we didn't have a revolution when the, you know, housing crisis hit and the banking yeah. crisis hit in 2008. So it's it's not sufficient that you just have, oh, a market crash and suddenly people yeah. in the streets. No, what what you need is you need something that, how do I say this? You need multiple things to go wrong at once, not just one thing. So like the 80s, one thing went wrong. We had stagflation in the 70s, mm -hmm. which is, you know, high unemployment and high inflation. And so that led to 19% interest rates. That was pretty bad. But that we also had a very low debt to GDP ratio at the time. And we could afford 19% inflation rates because 
the amount of debt in circulation was much lower than today, right? We had well, a huge you, you crash. Also, you also had a lot more cultural cohesion within the mm -hmm. United States, comparatively speaking. You also had the Soviet Union, which represented a, a great, which represented what was considered to be an, an existential external threat. And that historically has always been a way to unify people. Yeah. Um, so I mean, China can serve that too, but I, I, so I don't think that that, that is, is going to stop it, but you know, you had you had crashes before. You know, the dot com bubble, the two thousand eight crash. So, it's it's not that you just need a crash. You need multiple things going wrong at once. And here's the problem: everything in the macroeconomic system is about to go wrong all at once. Everything. Okay. So, okay, be be specific. So we have record high debt. We also have record high deficits. Mm -hmm. We also have almost a record high debt to GDP level. It's it's been higher than at any point other than the peak of World War II, and we're about to surpass that in the near future. Just give it a, a couple years, and we will be we will be at a higher debt to GDP level than even at World War II. So you have record debt, record deficits, record debt to GDP. Because it doesn't matter if you have a bunch of debt if the economy's booming, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, well, it does matter, but you get my point. So like. Those are all going wrong at once. You have long-term, over the last 40 years, interest rates have been falling. And until just a few years ago, they were effectively zero. You can't go lower than zero. You literally can't have interest rates lower than zero because then it's, oh, you're, you're paying, paying people, me to take out a loan. Paying me to take out a loan. Uh, yeah, to take out. So like, point is, is that they can't go lower than zero. Interest rates can only go up from here. And the reason why they can only go up is pretty simple. Even if the Fed, the Fed currently is raising them, right? Yeah. But let's say that tomorrow the Fed said, oh, we've won the fight against inflation. Now we need to cut because the market's suffering or whatever. Well, and there'll be a lot of political pressure to do, and uh, pressure there to is. do so. But interest rates long-term in the next 10 to 20 years are probably going to keep going higher regardless of what the Fed does. And the reason why is because when the Fed finally returns to the Fed put, right, of trying to prop up the market, yeah. which they will eventually do once they think they've either got inflation under control or or they're forced to do so for, for political reasons. Point is, is that they will eventually pivot at yeah. some point. When they do, inflation will kick back up again. We're probably going to see a return to the 70s of cyclical cycles of inflation throughout this decade. The problem is, is that who's going to loan the government money at a loss if, if the interest rate is 2%, but the inflation rate is 5%, who's going to buy treasuries? Yeah. You're losing money doing that. And so people are going to demand a higher return, which means a higher interest rate in exchange for their loan. And at the same time that you're seeing Japan selling treasuries, Japan is now a net seller of treasuries. And they're also the largest holder of foreign treasuries. They have like over a trillion dollars of treasuries. China is a net seller of treasuries. Currently, the Federal Reserve is a net seller of treasuries. They're drawing down their balance sheet. The largest institutional holders of treasuries are now net selling. That will drive up interest rates because there's an inverse relationship between interest rates and bond prices. And so what you're going to see is even if the Fed tries to hold interest, tries to continue with yield curve control, right, tries to keep interest rates down, there's ultimately not a lot that can be done to keep interest rates down because ultimately the market will demand a higher interest rate if they're if they know that if they don't they're going to be losing money. Nobody nobody loans money yeah. at a loss. Nobody does that. Mm -hmm. And so what you're going to see is artificially the decades of keeping interest rates at artificially low levels is going to come to an end one way or another no matter what the Fed does. All roads lead to Rome. As those interest rates rise the federal government, unless it balances its budget, and let's be honest, they're never going to do that. No. They're going to have to keep 
taking on new debt at a higher interest rate to pay off the old debt at a lower interest rate just to fund the government. And so eventually you're going to get to a point where it's already like- It's a death spiral. Uh, it's a death spiral. And so what do you get at that point? The the Eventually what you're going to get is a situation where the only institution that will be able to loan money to the government is the one that will be mandated to do so, which is the federal government yeah. or the federal reserve that will have to print dollars to then buy treasuries to give Congress the money to spend on their you know gender programs in Pakistan, right? And- at that point, every new dollar that's added to um, Congress, you know, that Congress is spending over the amount that they're taking in is a dollar added to the money supply. That's where you get the debt spiral. When that happens, that's when you get a Weimar moment. And the tragedy is, is that we've seen from history that people conclude quite often, apparently, that Weimar problems require Weimar solutions. <laughs> and we don't want Weimar solutions. No, we don't. We don't want authoritarianism coming. Well, and, and Kenneth Brown asked an interesting question. He goes, what about mass partisan debanking or uh, confiscation to prop up the failing dollar? And Kenneth, that, that's an excellent question because I, I do think... Um, well, one, I think partisan debanking is is going to be a lot more difficult than people think it's going to be, uh, in part because when you've got institutions like not just in like the banking or our, our local savings and loan, but when you have people that essentially control investment, like like BlackRock, I, they don't totally control, but when you have ten trillion in assets. The, one of the reasons why we have all these DEI scores and ESG taking place or whatnot is because institutions like BlackRock require it. Otherwise, they won't loan money to you. And, and that that creates a big problem. The question is, is what sort of mechanism is going to exist within the marketplace to rise up as competition for it? And will the government attempt to intervene? One of these, the biggest problems that I have with Elizabeth Warren is her constant drumbeat that, well, we need more banking regulations. We need more banking regulations. She doesn't mean that because she wants you as the, the small depositor to be in a better position. She wants the government to control banking or to have such control over banking that it, essentially they can manipulate that process. And, and that is terrifying to me because banking is supposed to be one of two things. You putting your money in a safe location for which you pay a small fee, or if you're talking about fractional reserve banking, it's you're giving your money to an institution which you allow to invest a portion of it, and then they either pay you a small amount to keep the money there, but then they also provide other services which allow you to easily distribute your money to other entities or whatnot for, for a variety of commercial purposes or economic purposes. And the more the government gets to control that entire process, ostensibly in order to protect you, the harder they make it for competition to be able to enter the marketplace. And I believe that's that's a far greater motivation for someone like Elizabeth Warren than it is, oh, we just want to make sure all the small depositors, really? So you're telling me the, the same federal institution, which is over $30 trillion in debt because they've so poorly mismanaged their own assets, is going gonna, is gonna to give banks a, what, a, a lesson and how to do it effectively or properly? I don't, I don't buy that. There's a there's 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 an article that I read from Seeking Alpha. It's um it's it's an investment website. It's actually a fantastic investment website. And there was this article that was published in in January um titled In Case of a Sovereign US um in case of a US sovereign debt crisis, gold may be the best place to hide. Now, this is not me advertising gold. Buy buy Freedom Gold, <laughs> right? But, but there there were some points in this article and and by the way, I mean gold is gold is just a yellow rock. I mean, it's it's a it's a fantastic asset to hold to preserve your buying power, but I mean, you could do the same thing with Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um you could do the same thing with silver if you want. But there were some points in this article that were fantastic that I think contribute to the whole question of why I think the economic thing and the economic crisis and specifically a sovereign debt crisis yeah. tied to a collapse of the dollar as a result 
are going is going to be the thing that basically so, so kicks it all off. So cl- clarify that because I, I think everybody watching this, regardless of where you're at, kind of like in your economic literacy, everyone understands that, okay, yeah, inflation, especially hyperinflation, tends to be very, very corrosive, not only for an economy, but for a society. And a lot of times people have this idea that like, well, we're not talking about economics, we're talking about people. The economy is people. That's yeah. what it is. It's not an engine. It's not a machine. It's not anything. The economy is, is nothing more. Or it should it really is nothing more than people attempting to improve their own lives, provide for their basic needs and services, desires and whatnot through exchange. That that's what that's what the economy is, and and when when you create a situation where one of the primary mechanisms of a, of a advanced economy, i.e., a dependable currency, um, all of a sudden disappears. Or and when I say all of a sudden, I don't mean like overnight, but in, in a very, very short period of time where now the, the mechanism that you have, the primary mechanism that you have, which is control of whatever currency you possess to go out and exchange for goods and services, all of a sudden is worthless or gone. Mm-hmm. That creates a crisis point. We, we saw that in the Weimar Republic. We've seen it in other countries as well. And when you have a, when you have a, uh, now you, you can survive it, right? You can get through it with, with, various mechanisms. But I think what Christian's saying, I think what you're about to get into now is when you have a combination of things like hyperinflation or a collapse of the dollar plus a, a sovereign debt crisis, there, there's another component that's added into that that facilitates, that goes from a really bad economic situation to people in the streets with guns demanding you know, revolution. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, when, when they had hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic, there was an attempt to overthrow the government called the cap push. Yeah. And, and, and so, so the, the points that this guy had, I, I just want to go through a few of them to really explain what I meant by everything is, is going to go wrong all at once. So remember when I brought up earlier that like we have, you know, over $32 trillion, actually, I think it's now like $33 trillion in debt, the highest debt to GDP ratio, you know, largest deficit as well. And we're going to, um, be looking at a long-term trajectory in the next 10 to 20 years of higher interest rates, not lower. Th- th- this guy actually brings up the same points. And he was like, any of those four factors could potentially be survivable by a nation in isolation from one of the other negative circumstances. The problem in 2023 is that all four of these storms are now hitting the target simultaneously. It is the perfect storm, a once in a 300 year category seven twister. Nobody alive today has seen anything like this happening in U.S. markets in their lifetime. And and here's the four points that he has. I take the four components of this category seven perfect financial storm in term. And he says, the first point is you could deal with a record debt if the economy was booming with higher GDP growth, or if the deficit was zero or negative, or if interest rates were falling, but the opposite is happening. Yeah. You could deal with a rapidly growing budget deficit for a while. If you came, if it came on the backs of having no debt or being a net creditor, so that you can invest for a while and then pay it off with superior economic growth and or a higher level of personal savings. But the opposite is currently happening. You could deal with sharply rising interest rates, this gets back to the 80s thing, if the debt level was low and falling or if the budget deficit was low or falling. But the opposite is happening. You could deal with a huge swing from quantitative easing, money printer go burr, to quantitative tightening, which is what the Fed is currently doing by selling off, letting their assets fall off their, their, their balance sheet. If all three of the above factors were going in the opposite direction, but the opposite is happening. In short, every single factor that could be tilted over the U.S. fiscal ship is um, in the wrong direction is currently happening. 
It is a four out of four in terms of deadly macroeconomic blows all happening at once. I mean, he basically says- Can you says, sum up what exactly that would mean for the average person if this ha if this finally did clinch it? What would that mean for the average person and what would their individual responses look like that would make that a catalyst? What you, do you think they'd do? You go to the store and you try to buy eggs and you see that it costs- ten thousand dollars for a carton of eggs well okay, okay. Let, let me let me put it another way you get your social security check but it's meaningless because the amount of money that is actually mandated to you by the federal government can no longer keep up with inflation so your social security check is meaningless it pays for nothing same thing is now true of medicaid and medicare so now you can't now the three major um the three major consumptions of of non-discretionary spending in the united states um it is essentially worthless. So now you have a significant portion of the, of the voting population, which can no longer rely on things that they were told they could rely on for both their health and their, and their basic sustenance. Not to mention the fact that you're now operating in an environment where those of you who are not dependent on one of those three programs, um, find yourselves in a situation where you can't afford anything either because, again, the, the inflationary economy makes your, your fiat currency, your, your dollar, uh, effectively worthless. Now I want you to imagine the first way that we try to deal with this is politically. Well, politically, the way they're going to try to deal with this, we've got to save all of these unsustainable federal programs. Well, how are you going to do that? You're going to tax more. Okay, you're, you're gonna so you're gonna tax people at the time where the econ the economy is already failing, and, and now you you're gonna drive division between different people that are fighting for different things within the federal government. You're gonna have politicians that rise up and essentially say, no, 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 they're the bad guys, we're the good guys, support us, and we'll get this. So you're you're gonna so see a lot of that. At that point, they start finger pointing and deciding who's who's to blame for it. Yes, but it the, the next point though, the next problem is this. All of a sudden, you have widespread civil disorder going on because the very things that people were dependent upon, their currency, their Medicaid, their Social Security, their job, everything is gone. So now people are rioting. People are burning things down. People are looting. So you call in the police, but you can't pay them. So you call up the military, but you can't pay them. How do you enforce the law when all of a sudden the very mechanism that you have to ensure that the people that are responsible for enforcing it will actually go out and physically do it can no longer be paid because you have an absolute crisis on your hands? I see that as a disintegration of the republic, but I don't necessarily see that as national divorce. National Those divorce, two things are the same thing in my no, opinion. Not really. <laughs> um, the reason I say the they're republic? not is because you have ideological... Uh, diametrically opposed factions within the United States. So in order to have a divorce kind of situation where it's almost sort of a civil war scenario, you have to have somewhat clear lines of who's who and who's causing this. And it's not just going to be the government doing it. And now, oh, now it's just, well, that's okay. Keep in mind. The what problem we, is, is I think we already, wait, well, wait a second, wait a second. To be fair, we already talked about there's three conditions, right? Yeah. Okay. So the, the point is, is what's a catalyst? Assuming these three conditions have met, what's a catalyst? What Christian's arguing, and I, and I think he's right. I don't know that it will be the one, but if it happens, it definitely causes, it definitely causes problems because this, and this leads into point three, right? Is what is the response from the feds, the, from individual people? And what is the response from the states? Yeah. I was going to ask you a question about that, but, but let me know if, if, well, we, we, what we have is when, when you have a situation where the, where your, your currency is essentially worthless, 
um, or, or let's say just next to worthless. And now you have different people competing um, because they're so dependent on federal programs, which can no longer be properly financed without either massive borrowing, printing, or, or taxing. Right. But then you run into that, the, the additional problem of not being able to actually fund the agencies you require to go in and actually impose your, your federal will through law enforcement. Okay. What, what happens? Well, it's not that all of, every, all of a sudden everybody just runs into the woods and sets up individual tribes and start becoming hunters and gatherers. They start looking for other authority structures that they actually have more faith in. And that's the part where I look at it is the, the individual response to something like this is you move to a place where you can actually, you're, you're either not going to be harassed by people that are rioting and looting and, and robbing, or you, you, there's some semblance of order still in place. So those states, which are actually better equipped to provide some level of stability, whether it be economic or just safety from a social standpoint, those ones are going to fare better. And as a result, they're going to draw population. People are going to vote with their feet. And so the, the real question is going to be is as these things start to develop, because states are going to start to come up with their own policies and they're going to differ from one another on what they actually do. And we already see some of the questions up here. Like, so for instance, Bob asked the people have an alternative, to the U S dollar um, and it's crypto. Do you see any state adopting a cryptocurrency to protect itself from the federal reserve? I think what's far more likely to happen is the federal reserve is going to push its own crypto um, It'll push a, a, a CBD, um, a, a central bank digital currency. Yeah, essentially that's the CBDC. But I, I do think that I do think what you can see happening on the state level is, and and what's interesting enough, BRICS, which is it was China's alliance between uh, Br Brazil, Iran, uh, China, India, South India, Africa. Not Iran. Oh, sorry, yeah, Brazil, India, uh, China, Russia, and South Africa. Right, they're actually trying to come up with an alternative currency to the dollar, so the dollar would no longer be the reserve currency, and they're actually trying to make it precious metals backed. Which there's a lot of problems with BRICS. I don't think it's actually going to be able to pull off a lot of what it wants to do. But but a a a currency backed in in some way, shape, or form by some sort of precious metal, uh, which doesn't allow for hyperinflation, what will actually be a very very appealing currency to invest in as a hedge against purely fiat currency, especially if it's accepted internationally. And that, and that's going to be the part where you're going to start to see states. And, and this, this creates something of a constitutional crisis, right? Because the federal government does have um, authority with respect to us currency. But if, if the federal government mismanages it so badly to where states are like, look, you're not providing us an alternative. We have to come up with something in, in order to ensure that commerce can exist. And we can't do it with federal reserve notes anymore. That's where you get into another state response to a crisis like this, where you, you see a place like Florida going, sorry, we're going to start issuing our own currency, or, or we're going to allow for more of a free banking system where banks are actually allowed to um, have currency um, because we, or, or you just have competing currencies yes, in the form of crypto, competing Bitcoin currencies. or Ethereum yeah. or, or <laughs> I, I, I've made the argument before that Dogecoin actually could be a currency because it's inflationary, yeah. but it's fixed to an algorithm. So you can't meddle with it like a central bank can. Yeah. I, Nick, the, the question that I was going to ask you earlier is you, you actually said that you agreed with me when I brought up the whole economic stuff. And I was, I, I was reading off this book and I, yeah. I was reading in this article and, and what I was trying to get across is, is that like, look, any of these problems that, that we've talked about in this episode and before on the economic front has happened before, but we've never ever in history had all of these things all come together all at once. 
And this is why I've said over and over again in previous podcasts that I think that the thing that's going to trigger the right wing backlash or whatever you want to call it is going to be economic in nature because people are not going to march out on the streets if their favorite politician gets thrown in jail. Yeah. People are not going to march out in streets in the streets if a Supreme Court ruling doesn't go their way. People will march out onto the streets if they're literally on the verge of going homeless and hungry and they remember just a few years ago they were living a comfortable lifestyle. And so this is why I think the economic crash big time sovereign debt crisis death of the dollar type situation yeah. is what will trigger this from you know happening and i'm also convinced that it's going to happen because there's no incentive to cut spending in washington dc the end result is going to be this debt spiral this hyperinflationary debt spiral so the question that i have for you is and maybe i just explained the first half of it but why are you convinced that that scenario that i i listed out just a minute ago is the actual thing that will be the catalyst. This is the Franz Ferdinand moment. Well, That's well, the first half. Let, and then okay. the second half is, if you if, if you do think that that is the Franz Ferdinand getting assassinated moment that kicks this whole thing off, what do you think the response is going to be at the federal level, the state level, yeah. the individual or local level? I, so, I think the, so I, I don't necessarily know that this will be the catalyst. I know if it happens, it has to be the catalyst. Does that make sense? It's yeah. not that something else couldn't happen from one of the other things that we've mentioned that could kickstart everything. But if this happens, that's a catalyst that, that is, that is going to result in some sort of massive departure from what we currently understand the United States to be as a legal and political, political entity, right? There, there will be, there will have to be. And it's for the reason that you said, why do I believe that? Because I've opened up a history book more than once in my life. Um, whenever you deal with situations with, with massive economic decline, especially in a relatively short period of time with a people that was not used to it, right? We're not talking about perpetual poverty over decades. We're, we're talking about things going relatively good and then it tanking pretty quickly. It becomes very easily both for people to be justifiably upset, but also for political demagogues to, to, do their best work with respect to isolating people, putting them into groups and then pointing at other people as their enemies. And because some of them might even be right on some level, right? And, and the problem that we have right now within the United States and within the federal government is it is fed, it is untenable. I say this as someone that has been a candidate for Congress. It is untenable to go out there and say federal spending on non-discretionary programs like social security, Medicaid, Medicare, is unsustainable and that these programs are, are fundamentally problematic. It, it's not that they've just been mismanaged. It's not that we don't pay enough in taxes. It's not that we don't have enough economic growth to sustain them. They are fundamentally flawed at, at a level where you, you cannot sustain them in perpetuity with the way that they're currently constructed. You just can't. The incentive structure is wrong. I said that, that Social Security has been run like a Ponzi scheme, and I had the, the, I mean, the amount of Republicans, people that agreed with me, theoretically or in principle, Nick, you can't say that. I'm like, but it's true. Yes, but people are going to think that you're anti-Social Security. That's like, why we're doomed. And that is the point. That is the point. Because is that speaking when, the when truth— equals political suicide. When you have gotten to the point where you can look somebody in the eye and you can say, I am sorry that you were sold a bag of goods by your by the federal government on these programs, but they're not financially sustainable and here is why. You know what response I get back? And FDR knew this when he instituted. The response I get back is, but I paid into that. I'm owed that. 
And the idea is, is that, well, if I'm owed something by the government, well, then clearly by law, they have to come through. Laws don't change the fundamental nature of reality. If the federal government no longer has the capacity to make good on their promises, they don't get to pass a law which says we've made good on our promises. They can do it, but it won't change the fundamental reality of the fact that you can no longer buy bread. And that's the part that people are going to come to a very, very hard realization on if we don't make some sort of massive correction. Now, the question to, to answer the second part of your question, the reason why it's so fundamental and, and will be the catalyst if it takes place is because it will affect everybody on a fundamental level, except for like the ex extremely wealthy or those in political power. It'll take longer to affect them because they'll be able to escape. Um, but they're even going to have problems with it as well. But when, once you have massive social disunity like that, and you, you already have a culture that is no longer as close-knit as it used to be by the institutions which used to define it, like religion, marriage, civic organizations, or, or, or even at this point, a dedication toward the idea that our, our national-level institutions are fundamentally secure. Right? When that's gone away, you're going to get fractionalization. You're going to get a lot of problems. And then the question will be is, what will individuals do at that point? Well, individuals at that point are terrified. They're looking for some level of security. What will the federal government try to do? The federal government will try to reassert itself as the overriding authority, but their capacity to do so will be severely diminished. What will states do? Some states will side with the federal government because that's what they've done, and they don't know how to run any programs without federal dollars anyways. Other states will, will reassert their own authority and jurisdiction and start to question the sort of power that the federal government has. And those states are going to be in a position where they're going to be, be able to provide some level of, of physical security, social security, and economic security. And what I don't know, what I don't know is how individuals respond to that. Because I know the, the, initial, um, the initial desire will be get from the economically, socially, and physically unsafe areas, unstable areas, and get to the ones that are safe. Leave the states where people are rioting and burning things in the streets and get to the states that seem to be functioning relatively securely. The problem is, is what happens when they get there? Do they actually recognize? Like, this is the problem we've had before with the locust versus the refugee. The, the refugee understands what they've, what they've left, why they've left it, and are appreciative of where they're at. The locust never seems to realize that it's, it's their behaviors and practices where actually creating the famine. And so wherever they go, they just create more of it. And that's the part where you're going, to reach a, you're going to reach a crisis point where certain states will say, this is what we believe and this is what we do and this is why you're coming here. And if you come here to try to change it, it it's not going to be state police. It's going to be citizens of those states going, no, you screwed up all of this and you don't get to come here and tell us what to do. You get to sit there, shut up and be happy that nobody's burning down your store anymore. Or, or, or burning down your house. And that's going to be a part where you're going to actually, again, it's a horrible, I don't want to see this because that's a horrible part where people feel a, a sense of righteous indignation that we warned this was coming, you did it anyways, and now you have the audacity to not accept some measure of responsibility for what your philosophy wrought. And now you want to come to the safe area and you want to tell us how to do it? That's the part where you're going to see a lot of a lot of social friction. So when I when I look at 
the catalyst. And when I look at what the state, federal, and individual responses is, federal is going to try to reassert its authority. State is going to reassert authorities that it gave up a long time ago. And individuals are going to flee to wherever they think they're going to be the most safe. Real quick, I want to thank Nico for his super chat. He said, Christian is right regarding economic collapse. Most Americans have never seen what a third world country looks like. If you have normal Americans not being able to get running water for the first time, it will be a catalyst for chaos. I think he's absolutely right. Oh, I, 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 yeah. I just, I, um, as, as soon as he said, uh, Christian is right. I have a question. Uh, yeah. This isn't in our list, but I, I do kind of wonder this after we all went through the COVID lockdowns and we all dealt with how vicious and vile people became toward one another. I mean, just trying to intimidate each other, trying to shame each other. And, and this happened on both sides of the argument, but it really was much more heavy on one particular side. Um, so what I'm wondering is, you know, there was if you'll remember, we all sort of got swept up into it at first going, wow, how bad is this going to be? And we all started fixating on the numbers. And of course, the numbers were skewed because it looks as though we had COVID here way sooner than they thought. So the mortality rate was completely skewed because you didn't even know that some people, you wouldn't even know they were sick. And so the mortality rate was nowhere near what they were saying it was, the whole deal. And so on the other side of this, obviously hindsight tends to be 2020. In this situation, we're still trying to get a clear view of it because the uh, subterfuge was so deep. Um, but after seeing how all of this went down and, and looking at how much more skeptical a good half to 60% of our society is now. Cause I know people who got the shot, got the vaccine. They were really big into masking during the time. And then on the other side of it, now they feel super betrayed. They will never fall for that again. They wish they had never done it. They feel like they were duped. Now they're encountering health problems because of mm -hmm. the jab, whatever it may be. Now that we're on the other side of this, do you think another pandemic scare that is maybe a different type of illness now? I mean, let's say Ebola yeah. <laughs> or something. Now, of course, Ebola is, is so much worse than COVID um, because of what it does to your body. When, yeah, hemorrhagic fever. Where yeah, you're when you're bleeding out of, out of your orifices <laughs> and your eyeballs. That's, and it kills you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... But if, if we suddenly had another scare, like a new strain of COVID, or there's some other kind of, of thing, how many people at that point would be like, I'm done, I'm done, I'm not doing this with you again, and they're like 20 more days of lockdown, no, we're going to shut I, I down think, your business. I think what would happen is is that blue states would, would do the lockdowns because they just seem to love them. Um, I, I think red state, more red states now would, would enter this with an extreme degree of skepticism and more people would be, I, I think, I, I think a, a significantly larger portion of the population would be less likely to follow the government approved science, right? They, they would want to see facts. They wouldn't want to see evidence and they would not be bullied into it either. There, there was a whole lot of social pressure to engage in certain activities that we only learned later were, were not necessarily that beneficial. Um, and so I, I think you would, I think it would be an interesting response, but I, I think you would see, 
I don't think it'd be a, a catalyst for stuff as much as it would be certain states would respond one way, other states would respond other ways. And the federal government, again, what what's going to be their approach? Is, is the federal government going to come in and try to, that's what it would take. It would take the federal government coming in and telling Florida, no, you will engage in these lockdowns, in which case Florida says no. And then how does the federal government actually you know enforce it? So- all right, let me do it. Let me do a quick wrap up here because we're gonna we're gonna get to just questions. We're gonna get to the segment of the show where we're just handling questions. So we're gonna do a wrap up here. Bottom line is, is like we said before, there's three conditions associated with this idea of national divorce, and this is not just for the United States. This is what we've looked at through history with any country. One is is that you have significant portions of the population. And by significant, I mean, you know, numerous popular or, or numerous and you know politically and economically powerful that have diametrically opposed visions for the country. Right? They fundamentally disagree on the, on the overall nature of the country. They fundamentally disagree on the, the institutions of the country, and they certainly fundamentally disagree on the direction that the country should take. We already have that. That condition has been met. The second condition is people start to geographically um, uh, separate. They start to, they start to uh, self-sort into the areas which they feel better reflect the sort of environment that they want to live in. And so within the United States, we know we have different regions that are very different socially, culturally, economically, politically. So Again, we're starting to see more and more people that are starting to move to different locations, not simply because they got a new job offer or because the weather is nice. They're actually moving for politically, ideologically motivated reasons, and that is very, very different. However, I don't believe, I don't think any of us believe, that has actually happened on a level uh, that would be sufficient to actually have a national divorce take place. But the pendulum is swinging more in that direction where people are moving for the politics, not just the weather or the job opportunities. That leaves the third condition. And the third condition is, again, we talked about diametrically opposed visions for the country, both where we've, where we've been and where we're going. It's one of those sides taking such significant control of the federal government. That means the House, the Senate, the presidency, and the Supreme Court to where they can essentially ram through whatever they want. Now, there's two things that are required here. One, they have to have that level of political control. And two, they have to actually use that level of political control or believe it's appropriate for the federal government to impose that on the rest of the country. Right now, that largely resides with the left wing of the political spectrum, but there are elements within the right that are also saying that, hey, they're willing to impose that as well. But if one side gets control of that and decides to ram it home through things like court packing, that's going to be a real problem. And then we discussed the catalyst. I think the main catalyst that, that is a surefire way, like, and by that, I mean, if it happens, we're going to see massive problems and we're going to see the, the most likely uh, episode for national divorce is the one that Christian brought up. And that is significant economic collapse. Um, now that doesn't mean that there couldn't be a, a lot of things that would, you know, facilitate greater division if Trump was jailed, but Hunter Biden got a pass. If, uh, the left wing got in there and they, they packed the Supreme court, if the Supreme court did something that was seen as so egregious that states decided to push back against federal law or push back against federal edicts, all of those things would be contributing factors, but I'm going to have to, my personal opinion is I think Christian's accurate. Once you get a combination of those things, plus a significant economic collapse, that's where you see all of this coming to a head. And the real question is going to be, 
What do various entities do about it? I think the federal government is going to try to reassert their authority, and I think they're going to be willing to use violence and coercion in order to do it. I think states are going to start to not only assume authorities that used to exist at the state level, but I think they're going to start to question and push back, especially things within the Constitution like the 16th Amendment, as well as the federal government having sole responsibility for the management of the currency. I think that's something that states would fight back on. As far as individuals, I think individuals are going to be going straight for wherever you think is going to provide them some degree of physical safety as well as economic safety. They want to go someplace where their property isn't going to be confiscated either by a mob or by agents of the government, right? Now, I don't want any of this to happen, right? I'm not a doomsdayer. I don't want any of this to happen. I want us to understand historically what has happened in other countries so we can prevent it from happening here. And the next episode that we're going to do on Thursday is actually going to lay out specifics, things that people can do at a federal level, at a state level, and at an individual and a community level, at a family level, things that they can do that actually reinforce what I believe are the best aspects of what it means to be an American. And this does mean things like respecting individual liberty, respecting things like free markets, respecting things like property rights, and actually teaching your kids to be able to appreciate these things and to be able to live within a society that is so close-knit, right, that when bad things do happen that are beyond your control, you have mechanisms not only to be able to sustain yourself economically and socially, but what you really have is the ultimate argument. Because when things are going really bad, people are automatically going to search for what is actually working. In the midst of the chaos, what is working? And we think we have some ideas to be able to put across to our audience that we want input on, but we think we have a mechanism that can actually help facilitate that to once again make the greatest argument possible, which is not just the words that you use, but the way you live your life and how it reflects and interacts with reality in order to present good solutions. So I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I want to thank you for the questions you've given so far. We're going to move into the question segment. I also want to once again thank Good Ranchers. I know people don't like ads. I know that. There's a reason why we don't do a lot of ads. But the reason why we decided to team with Good Ranchers is because we not only appreciate the values that they have as a company, we appreciate the quality products and services that they provide. And that's one of our commitments to you. We're never going to join in to any, any sort of economic deal with anybody that we don't think is actually providing you something of quality. And Good Ranchers absolutely does that. And again, with the promo code Nick, you can get $30 off your order, plus you can get free shipping. I think that's a good deal. If you just want to try them out, go look at one of their packages, find something that you like, try it out. We were not disappointed. And believe me, I was looking for an excuse to be disappointed. They actually produce a really, really good product, and I think you're going to like the values of the company as well. Once again, thank you for joining us on this episode. For those of us on our audio platform, Thank you again for, for bearing with us. We know that the episodes have gotten a little bit longer. We've had some people talk to us about that, but we think we're having good conversations. We hope it's worth your while. We are now going to move into the question segment on our YouTube rumble and every other channel. Once again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next episode for everyone else. Let's get to some of the questions. 